0: Or eat anything. These or are important question I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Well, highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome. This is the special weekend edition of Truth Jihad Radio, the live show, which I've been doing for, I'm not sure how many years now, but I think it's the the better part of a decade, if not more than that. And uh, I've been doing radio since 2006. Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com, otherwise known as Revolution.Radio, is definitely worthy of your support, so please do help keep the premier free speech network on the air and Help them help get that upgrade that you heard about in the uh, precursor to this broadcast. Well, let's get going tonight. We have two authors on in the second hour. Mike King comes on to talk about his new old book, Crash Course, 9-11 Inside Job, debunking the official story in just one hour. It has a lot of information for just one hour. It's a condensation and slight update of his 2003 book, Stranger Than Fiction, and we'll get into that in the second hour. In the first hour, equally strange and conspiratorial stuff, maybe even more so, there's a a wonderful book out called Big Mother, The Technological Body of Evil, that delves into some of the more esoteric stuff we talk about on this show, and then some. It's by Jason Horsley. I've had him on before. Uh, we re- most recently talked about his book, The Kubrickon, which uh, is another highly worthwhile read, especially for people interested in the films of Stanley Kubrick, maybe even if you're not. I think I, I'm actually a bigger Kubrick fan <laughs> than Jason is. Uh, and I, I enjoyed the book. I enjoyed arguing with him about it. And we're going to have to argue some more, although actually, I kind of think he's barking up a lot of right trees in so much of his work, including this new book. So let's get into it. Hey, welcome, Jason. How are you? Hi, Kevin. Hey, good to have you back. And congratulations on this uh, big mother book. I'm 100 some pages into it, and I'm definitely going to finish it because it's uh, really wonderful stuff. Um, I'm having flashbacks to my Philip K. Dick days uh, from many decades ago. (laughs) Just reading it. Uh, 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 It it goes over so many different threads, but they all kind of weave together into... Well, you know, it could be almost like a, a world takeover conspiracy theory, like uh, the one by that that what's his name, that professor who wrote the book, the threat uh, about the the ETS are are planning to replace human beings. Uh, that, but this is almost worse because it's not just ETS; these are disembodied uh, cosmic entities. And you start out with a, a quote from Rudolf Steiner, I believe, to that effect, and go through the novels of philip k dick and uh and much more so i'm not sure where to say maybe we could start a little bit with philip k dick if any of my readers or listeners rather are not familiar with him uh he's pretty much my favorite american novelist and i take it that he had an influence on you too jason
1: yeah, that's funny because
0: you know, you're such a fan of Kubrick,
1: and uh, that was the last thing we talked about. And as you know, I'm not a fan of Kubrick with Dick. Um, yeah, I, I have been a fan. Uh, I wouldn't say he was massively influential because I didn't really discover Philip K. Dick until my 20s, and even then, I don't think he was terribly influential, but I think he's he's certainly a, a creative. Um, character with whom I felt a lot of affinity, growing affinity over the years and then there was a turning point in my relationship, my parasocial relationship with Philip K Dick, obviously he was already dead by that point, Um, in my 40s around the time I wrote Seen and Not Seen when uh, I wrote a piece that is now incorporated into The Big Mother which has to do with my autism hypothesis for basically I diagnosed him with autism uh, neuro as a neurodivergent and uh, but it wasn't it wasn't random I wasn't somebody who who was going around trying to find fellow autistics in you know in the annals of the famous or the talented just it just the shoe fit like the more closely I was looking at at him I was reading the exegesis uh, the more I started to think well this this really is a way to better understand Philip K Dick's vision and what was going on with him. Anyway, one thing led to another. And um, let's see, I mean, what what is are, what are the
0: uh, Well, well, well let's, yeah, let's, let's get into the you know, Philip K Dick autism issue. Because okay. in his novels, I think when well, he published almost 40, well, he wrote almost 40 novels and published maybe 30 of them or something during his lifetime oh. and mental illness Pops up quite a bit as a theme in his novels in all sorts yeah. of various ways, and in in particular in those two novels that you mentioned in the book, uh, Martian Time Slip, and uh, what was the other one that was? Uh, oh, oh, the uh, um, the the one about the precogs, right? the, the one with the autistic children predicting um, the Minority r- Report, yeah, right. Minority Report, which was made into the Tom Cruise movie. So yeah. he actually dealt directly with autism, sort of, in those two books. Yeah. And then but a lot of, a lot of his explorations of mel- mental illness and alternate realities seem to sort of blur the lines between the diagnoses. Uh, like you know, there, there's the one, which I forget the name of the one in which the, uh, the protagonist visits a planet which is basically a giant mental hospital because they, they built a mental hospital on this planet and then they had to pull out. So the, the crazies took over the asylum. and so the paranoids become the military industrial complex and so on and so forth. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, so so anyway, what, you know, if all of the thing, you know, you, you see his work exploring all of these um out there sort of mental states that shade into things that get people diagnosed with mental illness. And so mm-hmm. why why would you sort of focus on the autism rather than all of the other ones?
1: Um well, partly because I saw myself on the spectrum uh, and because of that I, I was interested in what actually is autism because it's one of those things we have a word for um, but we don't necessarily understand it and you have to understand it from the inside anyway so um, that's part of it but the part maybe that's more relevant to zero in on so we can sort of move smoothly into big mother as a the larger thesis has to do with Uh, Philip K. Dick's primary preoccupation, which I'd say was to do with uh, what it means to be human. And um, of course, his most, his seminal text, if you like, and the thing that made him famous just as he was about to die or after he died, Blade Runner to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. This was about the the intersection between human consciousness and artificial consciousness. And um, that was his preoccupation. Like what does it mean to be human and how do we define what is human? And as a sort of parallel interest was this, this idea of counterfeit realities, uh, which of course Philip K. Dick pioneered really, the idea of being living in a simulation was one that Philip K. Dick was writing about you know, decades before The Matrix. So <clears throat> there's a sort of um, overriding concern here with how do we know what what is reality? Who controls reality? Um, what 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 is our relationship to reality, etc.? What is it to be human? All of these these are very deep philosophical concerns. And Dick was very much a philosoph- philosophic science fiction writer, and so um, really, I was I was trying to continue the work that he started, if you will, not consciously, but by the time I was writing about Philip K. Dick, I realised, okay, I was drawn to him because he was trying to, he was trying to get to the bottom of a mystery, and uh, he died trying, and now I've got pulled into it myself. So so that was basically how I was writing about Philip K. Dick. Then when I began to put Big Mother together, I realised that, as you know, the early chapters are to do with my attempt to understand autism, by trying to understand what consciousness is, what what is human consciousness, what are the, you know, variables, what are the components of it, how do we define it and so on. And uh, I realized that Phil K. Dick, that material would would weave very well into that. And so, of course, the question of what is consciousness, uh, what does it mean to be human, that very easily segues into, particularly with Philip K. Dick as the bridge, into machine intelligence, artificial intelligence and and discarnate non-human intelligences. These are all actually one concern, I think, that have different angles of approach. And so that's that's in in, in a nutshell how or why Big Mother began with an exploration of autism and and Philip K. Dick.
0: Okay, well, I I have to confess, I encountered Philip K. Dick at an earlier age than you, at at fifteen, in seventy, I believe seventy-four, through Paul Williams' article in Rolling Stone, and uh, at that time, I was reading uh, other science fiction, and most of it seemed pretty lame compared to Philip K. Dick and Kurt Vonnegut. So those guys, especially Philip K. Dick, really kind of warped my mind at a time when it was also being warped by waking up to the problem with the JFK assassination, so that. so I, I can relate to your uh, finding, you know, something, you know, personal in uh, in the work of Philip K. Dick, as well as your, uh, c- you know, your a very accurate, uh, you know, diagnosis of his philosophical concerns, if not his mental health issue or whatever, is you know, di- his psychic diagnosis things, because I'm a little bit skeptical about some of those labels. But uh, sure. as, as, as far as uh, the issue of machine learning and artificial intelligence and the possibility of artificial consciousness, I I think you're very much onto something. Uh, There's a quote from your book that I put up at the radio blog, which people can find by way of truthjihad.com and then click on the radio show link. Uh, The evidence suggests rather that artificial intelligence will arise. In fact, already has arisen, not from, but through computer technology from an external source that is able to possess the machine and animate it, which in fact can only become known to us through the medium of technology. And that, that's something I've also uh, thought about, that the, there, there are various reasons to think that consciousness may not be just some illusion generated by a purely material world, but rather, consciousness in some ways might be even more basic than the material world, and that what we think of as consciousness, you know, growing out of brains, might be the result of a, a quantum process uh, in it between at the edges of the synapses where quantum effects become real. So something outside of uh, space-time material reality is the source of consciousness. And uh, Casey Blood is the physicist who's written about that uh, very interestingly. So anyway, yeah, I think you're right that if consciousness ever does, you know, start emanating from machines, it won't be the machines that are conscious. It'll be coming from the same place that our consciousness does, which is from a a different level of reality. Mm.
1: Yeah, well, there's a, a metaphysical model, as you know, I'm sure, for existence, which is much older than our present scientific one uh which is just what you said i mean that consciousness creates bodies rather and brains rather than the opposite way around and it's although on the one hand it seems like oh you're gonna have to back that up matey you know like you you can't it just seems mystical uh, i don't think it is i think it's actually much more self-evident and in fact the redu- the material reductionists have to present a lot more evidence for their hypothesis, which is essentially that consciousness comes out of something that is unconscious, which has no consciousness. They're arguing that that matter that is in sentience somehow generates consciousness, and I almost said somehow generates the illusion of consciousness, because I think it would have to be an illusion if the consciousness we have was simply generated randomly and by sheer chance by by matter right by unconscious matter it would be just the most bizarre freak accident and it would also be an illusion we wouldn't really be conscious which of course that's what
0: they say the materialists generally do say that 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 consciousness is just an illusion
1: yeah well it's a complete oxymoron like because who just said that and who's hearing them say it it's it's ridiculous it's just it cancels itself out so anyway we can move on from the Richard Dawkins of the world uh, and stay Mm -hmm. on this uh, the metaphysical model which uh, as as i say is necessary that because we are conscious physically uh, our consciousness must precede our physical existence and that doesn't therefore mean that it will outlast it but it's reasonable to expostulate from that that it will continue but the main point is is that uh, yeah, consciousness is it exists independently of the physical body, and it may be that it even does even while we're alive. Like our our thoughts, we assume come from our brain, but uh, or some people assume that. But maybe they just come through the brain. Maybe the brain is a receiver transmitter that is picking up consciousness from outside. Of you know, this is also part of a necessary hypothesis, I think, in in, in metaphysics. So to extend that then to to machines which of course I mean all of our technology, to some degree or another is human beings trying to imitate nature uh, and to become gods I mean that's a sort of that's a very succinct really summation of what's going on Um, and with machines yeah well, it just stands to reason that the same process insofar as it's possible to imitate creation at all which is very limited but insofar as it is possible the machine intelligence thing oxymoron again but would imitate that process like we as wannabe gods we create the machines and then we have to imbue them with consciousness that pre-exists the machine but where the uh interesting uh question arises then that I look at Big Mother where does that consciousness come from and and what I'm arguing with Big Mother is that it does come through human beings like we imbue technology including internet and thereby artificial intelligence computers with our own consciousness not really voluntarily but it gets siphoned off but we ourselves um, as we've just been talking about our own consciousness is also coming from outside of us to in various different degrees. So behind the human beings who are semi-conscious creating the machines with which they imbue their consciousness behind that is this other consciousness, which which in a perfect world or in perfect uh, lineup of the, of the forces of existence, that would be God. But we are, well, we're in this fallen phase i guess of whatever is happening here i won't say evolution uh whereby it seems that what is behind human consciousness particularly the kind we're talking about today is well, what i call big mother which is really it's, it's satan by another name I'm, I'm, I'm kind of arguing that satan is like norman bates in psycho like he's he's dressed in drag because he's satan's possessed by
0: by his mother which uh, that sounds very transphobic <laughs> <laughs> yeah Oh boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, and so, yeah, to, to flesh out your hypothesis, which I, I think actually has, makes a lot of sense, um, maybe we could, we can get there by way of, uh, you know, thinking about the way consciousness um, becomes sort of differentiated, that we, we become egos separated from the rest of existence, meaning that our, we become convinced sort of that, you know, we're our, we, we feel something on our body, pleasure, or pain, and then some other body gets something done to it, and we don't feel that, so we think we're separate from that other body and from everything else in the universe. And yeah. so that process of becoming an ego involves separation ultimately well, from the mother at first, because the mother is this body that we all are kind of part of in the womb yeah. and still sort of part of for a while after that. And right. and indeed, uh, the psychological work of, of Bowlby has shown that disturbances in that mother-child bond at a very early age have very profound and sometimes very damaging effects throughout uh, lifetimes. And, wow. and so there's there's something to this notion that consciousness is heavily shaped by that relationship with the mother as, you know, mammal, for, for us mammals at least. Uh, and so maybe you can talk about that and how that leads you to calling this kind of satanic Uh, you know, demonic entity creating the false aspects of reality and the evil aspects of reality around us, a big mother. Mm.
1: Yeah, oh gosh, I mean, here we go. Because we're moving right into the the very personal, from the cosmic to the personal, because everybody has a mother, had a mother, and everybody has therefore had this experience of being born through their mothers, and um, then to whatever degree separating from their mothers so uh, and I don't know if you've heard this I heard this many years ago but that in certain tribes you know pre-civilized tribes they would have a ritual whereby um, the the fathers of the tribe because it's probably one of those sort of social arrangements whereby children had they, they had two parents but they were raised by the whole tribe let's say this is how I'm remembering the anecdote anyway, that the fathers, the men of that tribe at a certain point would would take the, particularly a male child I think, specifically a male child, would, would take it out into the wilderness as a rite of passage but, and part of that rite of passage was they would take the child from the women and that the women as part of that rite of passage would fight the men to not give up the child Right. so the child wouldn't experience the abandonment of the mother they wouldn't it wouldn't just experience being given over to these you know, scary men by the mother and therefore feel abandoned and betrayed it would experience the mother trying to keep the child with her but not being strong enough to overcome the men and so th- this seems like a very it's an illustration of how subtle and how delicate that balance is in terms of a child having a healthy Individuation separation from the mother's body and the mother's psyche into becoming uh, a fully autonomous uh, adult, right? Which obviously takes many years. Um, and uh, uh, if that doesn't happen, things go horribly wrong, and, and it cannot happen in one of two ways. What the what, one way is uh, the Norman Bates way where it becomes a child is just so completely immersed in the mother's psyche that it doesn't develop any sense of identity at all. Well, actually, Norman Bates illustra- illustrates both my points. Actually, but the other way then is is that a, a male child becomes uh, separated from the mother too, either prematurely or too violently in a way that's too traumatic, and so it develops a, a an identity that's absolutely in, a, in opposition to the mother. So that can be a very overly masculine, violent, psychopathic uh, male psyche, uh, Ted Bundy.
0: And, And let me just break in to say that sort of reminds me a little bit of this whole custom of infant circumcision, which requires a certain male, such as a rabbi or a medical doctor, sort of ripping the infant away from the nurturing mother and then performing a sort of unspeakable torture by cutting the most sensitive part of the infant's anatomy uh, creating undoubtedly a kind of a lifelong PTSD. And it's been hypothesized by me, among others, perhaps, but I think I, I've actually developed this mostly from my own uh, work. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I would kind of suspect that part of the reason that we're seeing these psychopathic genocide perpetrators doing the things that they're doing in occupied Palestine right now is this whole circumcision complex. You know, this absolute hatred of Palestinian mothers and their babies with Israeli Defense Forces spreading around T-shirts with "one shot, two kills" with a target on the belly of a Palestinian mother, and you know, Ayelet Shaked, the Palestinian minister in the government, saying that we have to kill all the Palestinian babies, the little snakes, as well as as the mothers who bear them, and there are countless you know quotes like this. Uh, Israeli snipers posting, "I killed 14 kids today," on Twitter, and on and on and on. There's a real hatred of of the mother-child bond in Israeli culture. And then there's also really an, an, a, a tribal psychopathy in which the Jewish tribe treats other tribes the way a psychopath treats other human beings, as Laurent Guyanot has written. And, you know, one can easily trace that to that extremely violent early uh, separation from mother imposed by, you know, ritual, religious uh, infant circumcision.
1: yeah. Well, um, I think you're probably not wrong. Uh, There's some correlation to be mapped there. Um, There are other examples that aren't so obvious. I mean, one thing about circumcision is it's very young, at the age of eight, eight days, I think, so that's incredibly young. Uh, So clearly that has nothing to do with psychological individuation because a a child, an infant of eight days doesn't really even
0: have psychology, It's, it's, it's pure affect. Um, right, right, but that that effect is extremely powerful. That is absolutely, that, yeah, yeah. So that's that is going to be a traumatic memory that's going to shape that person's entire oh, life. Oh,
1: absolutely, and there's a reason for it. I mean, I've been re- I've read something very interesting about circumcision that um, I won't go into because it, it would take too much time. But as far as I understand it, circumcision is an example of occult practices that are deliberately geared towards. Uh, I mean, I use the term of traumagenesis in Prisoner of Infinity. So that is the, the creation of a trauma for a specific end. And it has to do with psychological formation, right? how to form the psyche and the physiology, really. It's the psyche in relation to the physiology, but through trauma. In the case of circumcision, it's done directly to the genital area. And so there are all kinds of specific reasons, from what I understand, that uh, for that. Um, Other occult practices that I've read a little bit about, I mean, I asked Crowley, for example, I I found him writing somewhere about how important it was to separate the male child from the mother's psyche. Um, But because it was Crowley, then I had to deduce that that the kind of methods that that he would prescribe would be also abominational, potentially abominations. Um, So, as I was illustrating in in my first points about separating from the mother, it's not enough that the, the child is separated ritualistically from the mother in such a way that he becomes independent. It has to be done in such a way that the, the amount of uh, distress is exactly the right amount. Um, and that that is very difficult to gauge. With, with circumcision and maybe other practices, uh, it, it's difficult to say uh, now like how effective they were back then, like I, I don't completely rule out that circumcision might have been the right thing to do a few thousand years ago, because things were so different, and it was... And in- we
0: have to differentiate between the infant circumcision and the coming of age circumcision, of uh, like you know, pre- pre-adolescent circumcision, which uh, most Muslim cultures actually still practice, and lots of other cultures, including African cultures, do as well.
1: Right. Well, I didn't know that, but that's, I mean, personally, I'm totally against chopping off body parts of any kind, much less that part. But I'm, all I'm trying to say is that the context is everything and the context of a covenant with a supreme being and so on, even if it's delusional or wrong, uh, it is very, is very different than nowadays. Like we're, we're thousands of years later, and some practices just. I mean, how many Americans get circumcised? This is, it's got nothing to do with any kind of covenant. It's right, it's Kellogg's, right, saying it was more hygienic. So we, so we've, we've crept very far from the original mission, and um, uh, in today's culture, to bring it back to the main topic, there isn't really much awareness at all. Actually, about any of this. I mean, you think in today's culture, it's considered irrelevant whether the father is around for a child, like two mothers raising a, a child, or two fathers, for that matter. But, but certainly, a single mother is considered, yeah, fine. What's the problem? Yeah, babies, babies don't need fathers. We've, it is so far from any kind of really sane understanding of this problem that, um, yeah, it's kind of like pushing a rock up a mountain to uh, to present this uh, thesis, really, the Big Mother thesis. However, if we start sort of reverse engineering way, if we start uh, at the other end and look at our society now, I think it's very easy to see that, well, number one, it's kind of satanic, and number two, uh, that that satanic totalitarian control energy is a kind of mothering energy. It's overprotective. It's all for our own good. It's just keeping us safe and warm and preventing us from growing up and being independent or autonomous. Right? It has all of those qualities to it, other ones too, but those are all I could think of offhand. That is, a you know, Orwell's big brother state does look more like the nanny state. Right.
0: right. But it's a it's a big mother rather than a big nanny or it's, it's sort of like a big nurse from Ken Casey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. There you another, go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Another good mental hospital metaphor. Yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah. 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 So. So anyway, so there are there are a lot of uh, moving parts in, in the big mother thesis. And it's it's very in an hour. It's almost impossible just to, to weave them all together. Um, but the other one I'll mention uh, is, is that of technology and how technology itself is an extension of technique. Now, technique is a term that I, I adopted from Jacques Allure's The Technological Society, which is basically about technique and how it has taken over the world. And his thesis is, is interesting to me because it's a, ostensibly, it's non-conspiratorial. Like he doesn't get into talking about any groups or even exactly agendas. He's talking about a mindset, really. It's almost like systems analysis, uh, but but he's arguing that with the the inception of technique, uh, which has to do with I mean you can apply that. You think about a number of different ways in which we we need technique. But you know, language or learning an instrument, uh, you you have to develop the technique, and then you and then you can practice, and then potentially you can improvise and so on. So he's not Alul isn't saying that technique is completely. Uh, unnecessary or or nefarious or you know a detriment but what he's presenting in that in his work is, is that technique has become more and more the, the 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 ruling principle of human society and human organization everything is technique based and technique has its own agenda which has to do with well i'm going to say to keep it super simple it has to do with uh, appearing to solve problems by actually creating bigger problems that it can then go on to solve. So we see this in our society, every every technical approach to a problem uh, might temporarily solve it, but it creates a bigger one. And we've got this, the COVID drama just, such a super super simple uh easy to go to example of this because well first of all they create the virus anyway but who knows what problem they were going to sell trying to solve with that but anyway they have a pandemic they create the appearance of a pandemic that's the problem and then they introduced the mRNA vaccine and that's the solution but as we know I imagine many most listeners that creates a bigger problem which they now have and so on so but but a little is talking about how this has been throughout his history really this has been going on for for a couple of hundred years at least uh whereby we're more and more taken over by the technic technological mindset, and um and that has its own agenda and, and so we're Sure, there are conspiracies and and groups and all the rest of it, but there's this overriding thing, which is like a, it's like a, it's like a mind virus that possesses the species and drives it into these compulsive behaviors and these uh, agendas and so on. So that's also. I'm just throwing that in there as well, just so just to try and okay.
0: gradually. Yeah, that's a good point. I've talked about that with David Scribina, the author of the Metaphysics of Technology shout out to David, by the way, maybe he's listening, Uh, a really good exploration of the fact that we're, it seems that this technique or technology that Alil talks about is, it's out of control. We're not, we're not actually uh, in charge of it. It's in charge of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's definitely part of my thesis. And I,
1: I, I indicate how it goes very far back and before the kind of technology we're used to now, like a blind man's cane, for example, that, uh, is is an extension of of the blind man's body and that's a way for him to uh, interact with his environment but it's also a way for him to keep uh, the environment at a distance, it's literally that's what a cane is for so he doesn't bump into things. Well we're like that, we're like the collective blind man who've created this cane that basically has just become an extension of our sensory apparatus and uh you know it's good for certain things obviously we don't want to bump into things but it's no substitute for actually directly interacting with reality
0: right and and so the thesis that this technology might uh was going to produce um artificial intelligence uh which will be possessed from without uh that's that's an interesting one, and it it raises the question of whether this process of uh technique or technology taking over everything as it has been for so long might actually be uh the the product of this kind of super intelligence that's going to emerge from it in this kind of a bootstrapping way. Uh, there One one approach to that question, I think, was developed in, was it Freeman Dyson, I think, the, the book title was Darwin Among the Machines. And his, he, I think he's a materialist. And so his argument was that machine evolution is happening vastly faster than biological evolution ever could. And obviously, machines are just going to take over the universe and, and you know, relegate biology to some, you know, it's, it's all going to, biology is all going to go extinct. Uh, And from his point of view, the machines will develop super intelligence vastly faster than biological systems ever did, and then they'll just go out and and use it to gobble everything up, Um, which strikes me as a very bleak and probably incorrect uh, view. But the notion that technology is not just this sort of blind process that's taken us over just just as a kind of a random uh, happenstance, but rather a uh, something with its own will and vol- volition and possibly you know it actually there could be some sort of uh entity that's that's behind it that's making us do this uh is that is that something that that you uh discuss in the book well it's actually how i start the book kevin because
1: i mean in the introduction i took about how i've been mapping hell for a long time and i thought i was done mapping hell but then i realized wait i've mapped hell but how did hell get built? I mean, I know that human beings built it, but but how did you know? What was their incentive, or what was that? And who lives in hell? Right? Human beings end up in hell, but but that's because they get sent there. So who actually lives in hell? Well, the answer is Satan. And obviously, I'm talking metaphorically. I don't think I'm talking literally, but I could be. So so yeah, I, I write in the intro. Uh, okay, now I'm going to have to actually write about satan because otherwise hell is you know like a a big empty haunted house there's got to be somebody running the show and um so it's a necessary hypothesis because if 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 you amass a body of evidence that indicates that human beings have been driven for centuries against their own interests that they've been driven into behaviors and policies and agendas and to create technologies and, and societies which are inherently anti-life, which is a very, you know, it's a very simple idea, right? well, the whole thing really, but the idea of anti-life, I mean, is a simple idea. It's not death, because death isn't anti-life, death is a part of life, but it's something that actually goes against the life force and what the life force wants. And um, But it's also, I think, a fairly simple hypothesis, what I said, Before that, which is that uh, if we've been driven into anti-life behaviours, what's been driving us? There must be something in the picture, hidden, but in the picture, that uh, has this drive towards something that is anti-life, an anti-life force. right? just that can't originate in human beings. It doesn't it doesn't make sense because even if you say human beings are suicidal, something must have happened. Like biology wouldn't create suicidal organisms. Even uh, the idea of lemmings that's that's a that's a hoax. That's a, a fake news. So lemmings don't really commit suicide. It's not a scorpion I hear does if it's in a ring of fire. I hear it will sting itself. So there are circumstances where, of course, there's no other way out. But we're not talking about that. Uh, we're talking about a species that apparently has just driven over centuries to to create the machinery of its own extinction. So yeah, so that there's some force, and and for years I I was writing books where I was I was trying to see it. Could could we just say it's trauma, like accumulated trauma uh, that has distorted the human psyche and turned itself against itself? And yes, you could say that that is. Definitely the key factor in terms of human beings, but you still leave aside. Well, why? Why would human beings traumatize each other systematically over the millennia until it got to this point? So we're back again to the Garden of Eden. Something there's some there's some intelligent force in human existence that uh, doesn't have our best interests at heart. That is jealous that is threatened, that, it, that that hates us. And, and so then you okay, well, that's Satan, isn't it? I mean, that's what the myths
0: of Satan or Iblis and, are about. And in, in, in Islam, there's the line, uh, uh, the evil of the slinking whisperer. And that's seen as a sort of a, a, a demonic jinn that whispers uh, words of bad advice to us. And, uh, and life is seen as a test in which we, uh, we we succeed to the extent that we refuse to heed that bad advice from the slinking whisperer and rather listen to the good advice from God and the angels and the prophets. And you know, if we take that as the model, then this branch of you know, reality that we're in right at this moment could be the product of a long history of lots and lots of people you know listening to the the right the right angel and then lots maybe in some cases even more making the wrong choice and listening to the uh, demonic slinking whisperer uh and all of that would be consistent with a world that is basically a kind of a, a test uh for conscious beings uh, and which is the the Quranic worldview yeah
1: well, and that's a—that's actually a positive spin on it, because I think we do have to always come back to the positive, to the life force itself. Um, that the anti-life force does test the life force. Uh, it doesn't mean that the anti-life force isn't evil, or isn't in in some way turned against itself. Because uh, you know, even if we say, well, Satan is evil, uh, it's tautological. Um, we we still have to say, well, how did Satan get that way? Right? Because he was Lucifer. What did he do to fall? Well, he got proud, prideful. But why did he get prideful? Right? There's never really a, f- a fully satisfactory answer. But no,
0: the the Quranic answer is is quite amazing. It's uh, that yeah, so Satan was uh, jealous at this creature of mud uh, that was going to be shed blood, be you know, be given such prerogatives uh, yeah. on Earth, and then yeah. so. God gave him permission to test us. I mean, that's that's kind of well, pretty straightforward and satisfying for me, anyway.
1: Oh uh, well, it's good enough, but I'm saying it's not fully satisfying because why did why did uh, he get jealous? You know, he's God's creation, he's God's highest angel. Why the hell would he get jealous, right? It's still uh, we can't, you know. But it, yeah, it's good enough, and and you you've made the point of the complementarity there between um, Satan getting in in that state of mind, let's say, where he's jealous of man uh, and God saying, well, okay, I've got just the job for you then, because that's in the book of Job, essentially. It's very similar in the book of Job because because uh, God shows Satan Job and says, look at him, isn't he great? And Satan says, huh, he's not that great. Uh, let me get my hands on him. I'll show you. He's only being good because you're nice to him. You know, if 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 he thinks you, you're not going to reward him for being good, he'll stop being good. So God says, "Okay, go ahead." Right. So that's quite similar. And again, we can see that Satan is somehow appears to be affronted or offended by God's admiration of man, and that because of that, God says, "Okay, then have have at him." Right. So, but to me, that describes. We're getting very philosophical here, but hopefully we will bring it back to Big Mother. Even That's theological, theological. Yeah, that does describe a sort of a cosmic uh, mechanism or a cosmic uh, process that we're way down deep in the trenches, uh, uh, you know, a su- was a subject of it. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I, I mean, I would agree that we're uh, and. Uh, the analogy as well, the parable, or the story of Jesus in the desert came to mind as well, which is uh, Jesus there is being tested by the Satan because he's good. Uh, and it's in, what's interesting, the reason I bring it up is that Satan, uh, well, two things actually I'll say. One is that Satan and Jesus, they don't fight satan isn't there ah, i'm going to kill you and jesus going fuck you i'm going to kill you like it's not a good and evil thing that's described there. satan's just coming and making some offers to jesus and jesus says no thanks it's very civil very friendly and they're more like brothers or something so that that's the first point the second point is is that uh that that lucifer satan the devil whoever we're going to name him um he's not threatening jesus and he's not uh, the temptations, they're not obviously bad, like turning stone into bread when you're hungry, that doesn't sound very bad. Um, Worshipping Satan, well, okay, obviously that's bad, but not if Satan isn't that bad, I don't know, you know it's not very clear what the problem would be there. And then um, throwing yourself down till the angels lift you up, well, that doesn't sound that bad either. Um, so, So they're subtle, the tests are subtle. And uh, certainly the first one, the other two are, well, no, you can see the ways in which we're tested, these other two. They have to do with uh, feeling safe, feeling secure. They have to do with convenience. You're hungry. Well, here's some bread. You're af- afraid or you feel powerless. Here, I'll give you power over all the kingdoms. You you think you might die. Throw yourself down and the angels will lift you up. I, they're, they're very human concerns that Jesus has to overcome. And so I, I do think that that's 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 something close to the nub of it, and that so yeah, the anti-life force is really testing us now. Are we willing or able to align ourselves with life, even if even if it kills us, like even if we're going to die, because the threat from the threat, right? like, it, like with the mRNA vaccine, how many people took that because they were afraid? Uh, that they would die if they didn't take it seems absurd to me but apparently some people actually believe that many people took it out of convenience but the point is the same that's the spectrum of people who are submitting to something that is inherently evil but seems convenient and that is promising to protect them protect them from from death
0: right it sounds a lot like Dostoevsky's great Grand Inquisitor scene in The Brothers Karamazov, which, of course, was to some extent lifted from the past, the biblical passage that you just cited.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, that's a great, I mean, Dostoevsky's my favorite author, and that's that's his standout sequence. And, I mean, that raises a whole other area uh, of things. We're focusing more on theology than anything today. That um, the, the Grand Inquisitor's challenge to Jesus was Dostoevsky's I mean, it was his own best argument, if you will. He wanted to give the devil the best argument he could. And he did that, which was that Jesus set an example that is, is so difficult to follow that people do need a mediating church that will take that responsibility away from them, even though it will lead them into evil. And that was the inquisitor's argument. And there's a, there's a good case to be made for that argument. Like Most people aren't able to to take on the challenge of of being an incarnation of god they're just not I mean, jesus who is right
0: so right but but maybe there's there's a way of sort of meeting people halfway and sort of helping them uh gradually move towards the state that jesus was in without necessarily going all the way into becoming a dystopian grand inquisitor promising to, you know, solve all your problems through technology and just submit to us and, you know, we'll jab you and we'll take care of you and maybe we'll even create an artificial way to keep you alive forever and uh, all of that. And there, there maybe there's a halfway sort of a church or I think Islam even maybe came partly because people weren't ready to go all the way and follow the Jesus example and become saints Um, so I, I don't see it as an either or thing where, you know, either you have to be a perfect, you know, saint, uh, like Jesus, uh, or, you know, for whatever he was even beyond being a saint versus either that, or you have to be the subject of, uh, of a satanic Uh, A bunch of control freaks. I mean, there's got to be a middle ground there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. God forbid, absolutely. So,
1: yeah. I mean, perhaps you, but certainly I. I mean, that I'm trying to walk that that very that razor's edge, really, which is, um, be able to hear what the devils are saying, and not not just try and tune it out completely because it's not possible. But but listen, only listen to and really observe what what's coming from the other side, you know, to follow that guidance in, in all the cacophony. And I do think again, I think that this is the nature of the the test that we're being subjected to, the test of Job really, is to develop more and more fine tuned discernment of spirits. And so we can we can tell the difference um between uh the truth and lies, uh, even as uh it becomes less and less convenient right, to listen to the truth. Because if you hear the truth, you have to follow the truth. Otherwise, you really make a mistake. But if you f- follow the truth, you have to more and more go against the herd because
0: the herd is more and more following the the lies. Right. And speaking of which, uh, I in my write-up, I sort of implicitly promised to have you say something about what you've been saying about the Holocaust on your Substack, so are you, are you? Can you talk about that, or or will that get you thrown into prison in twelve different European countries?
1: Well, it it would, and I'm in one of them where it doesn't happen, uh, and and also, I mean, maybe I should quickly add the proviso that it's not because I am denying the Holocaust, DTM, but I am I am questioning uh, the narrative, and I am questioning whether people being identified as Holocaust deniers uh, whether they have a case that's worth listening to or whether they're actually just either deranged maniacs or hateful Nazi-sympathising anti-Semites, right? There's, there's really only one frame that we're uh, officially allowed to think or talk about the Holocaust and by extension Holocaust denial, so I, I personally reject that uh, I've, I've, you know, I've rejected it ever since I was aware of the way Holocaust deniers or people who researched the Holocaust and found things that were inconvenient uh, were framed. But I didn't, I didn't want to actually go into it publicly because it just I knew it was going to be too big a, uh, you know, a, a fish to fry. So, so I, I I put it on the back burner, and then I, I can't exactly say. Uh, how and why it's now but I, but I would assume that it has something to do with what's going on in Israel and, and Palestine which by the way is another way in which I feel I've been half asleep for 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 the last 50 years even the last 30 years of I feel quite deep conspiracy research um that I haven't really I, I mean I knew a little bit about what was going on over there but I never knew uh, as with the world war ii narrative i never knew just how flimsy the official version is and it's quite disorienting to discover that uh one has gone along to to whatever degree much less than the the herd in my case but still to some degree have gone along with with a narrative that is threadbare it simply it simply boggles the mind to me i'm, I'm going to risk saying anything now I think but it boggles the mind to me that anybody could really think that um, uh, Israel has a good case for what's going on it just boggles my mind anyway I'm going to move on quickly because it's a general there's a general thing like it boggles my mind that some people actually believe that Joe Biden could run for office a second time it's everywhere really if you look around But obviously, some lies are bigger than others, and the World War Two narrative is one that has been in place for uh, almost 80 years now. And I do think it's uh, it's surpassed its sell by day or it's running out of um, not steam exactly. But anyway, I think it is a time to start looking at it and uh, to be emboldened to question it because um it, it's been so foundational in terms of how we see the world individually and also but in terms of geopolitics and certainly you know, policies and things specifically israel is the obvious case u.s and israel um but in countless other ways like it's a defining narrative it's what tells us what evil is what good is uh and and we've really been hoodwinked is all i'm going to say for now you know that there the are just billions and billions of facts about world war ii so one can't go through all of them one by one but one can go through enough to say very early on it doesn't appear that the the official narrative adds up it's a it's at best a gross oversimplification uh, at worst it's a you know, this is a total distortion where i do the uh where i also want to put a make a proviso or just make a comment um there's there is a there is also the danger that I've noticed even including myself to to start to want to invert the narrative to actually turn it upside down and say well what I thought was good was evil uh so therefore what I thought was evil must be good and this this is just staying in the same trap the problem with the narrative is it created a false idea that history can be can be uh, calibrated in terms of good versus evil right? and because we've got that imprint when we start to see that the allies weren't good and that the Jews weren't uh, essentially that innocent or whatever else we think we might start to see then uh, <laughs> we can you can see what the third part is we start to think oh well who are the good guys oh it must be those guys right the ones we told were evil well no that's a big mistake uh it's not good versus evil it's evil versus evil
0: right yeah i, I would basically agree with that um, all, although i think it's possible to find you know aspects of what you know we we thought hitler was 100% evil and then we learn that hitler reigned in the you know, central bankers created a miracle for the german economy and you find some other other you know positive aspects there and then you find that actually, you know, the people responsible for the war were more on the other side. And yeah. then you could go on and on. And so it's it's yeah. possible, I think, to actually end up sort of almost, you know, leaning against the uh the 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 allies who are the great heroes of the war propaganda that persists. You know, apparently we, we got over they got between the two wars, they got over the World War One propaganda, the babies being tossed around on German bayonets very quickly everybody realized that was nonsense that the World War II war propaganda still persists and shapes our world today. But I think we're just about at the end of the hour. So let's remind people uh, how they can find your book, Big Mother.
1: Yeah. Well, Big Mother, uh, you can, if you don't get it on Amazon, which you shouldn't, then uh, you can just get it through my publisher. I think you'll find a link at my website, landmademan.com. Also, I have an audio book that I've made, Uh, of that and other of my books like Vice of Kings, Prisoner of Infinity and 16 Maps of Hell and the Kubicon so audiobooks is the best way to support me because I actually make some money out of them as opposed to actual books which I barely do but anyway uh, whatever you prefer and then um, lastly like my main site currently is is on substack it's called children of job substack.com and that's where i'm doing weekly essays on the subject that we just ended on there and uh,
0: also weekly podcasts okay well you're doing wonderful work jason keep it up i really enjoy your uh, your books and your writing it's challenging and, and inspiring and uh really cool stuff so thank you so much
1: thanks kevin appreciate it
0: yeah, take care Jason Horsley talking with Big Mother, the technological body of evil. Uh, in the second hour, Let's Mike King Doc. is coming on. Stick right up. back after this semester.